But I reached into the center glove console of my, of my truck and I grabbed my pistol and I loaded it and I put it to my head and I pulled the trigger. Welcome to The Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. This is Al Levin, the host. I am very excited. Uh, today on the line we have Justin Peck. Justin is an off-road racer, a mental health advocate, and the author of Bulletproof. Justin, welcome to the show. Oh, my brother. How are you doing? I am doing fantastic, especially having you on the air. <laughs> Justin, I got, to, I got to meet Justin just like a month ago at the Mental Health America conference um, where I uh, was lucky enough to nail down a small gig of speaking and presenting <laughs> with a couple other advocates, but got to witness you, Justin, being interviewed on stage, a live interview to hear your story, and it was just incredible. So I was really lucky yeah. to uh, have the opportunity to meet you after that. And uh, again, thank you for being willing to be on the show. Man, I am blushing right now, like more than you know. Thank you, man. Like oh, that's was, uh, that that's probably the best intro I've ever had ever. Oh, it was fantastic to watch you. I Thank mean, you. you're real, you're raw, uh, you say what's on your mind and it's really what we need, you know? You have an incredible story and you're willing to share it and I guarantee you you are saving lives. And your book that we'll talk about later too, man, that is a page turner. <laughs> Thank you. It was uh it it was a, a a rough one to do, but you know it's it's like kind of what we discussed even prior to the show. It's I understand, you understand, and what we're trying to do as a message is we're trying to help everybody understand that we need to talk about these things. This is very important, you know, with with men and and with the way society is. I, it, for me, I hate seeing people in a sad position and and in a sad state, and I. I'm doing just like you. We're we're doing everything that we can to make life better for other people. Absolutely. So you um, are a career racer. Yes. Tell us about how you started. Uh, you were off road motorcycles, correct? Yeah, I um, I was pretty you know fortunate as a young kid. Um, we um, we didn't have a lot of money um, by no means. Uh, my dad drove truck for a living, and so you know we we lived off of what he made, and and we were happy with that. So, but at a young age, my dad he made enough to buy us motorcycles, and so between him and I, um, you know, we had we had a dirt bike, and that's what we did on our weekends. And so, as time went on, uh, you know, I got a little bit better at it, you know, as as a young kid, and then when I got married. Um, was kind of when my whole racing thing kind of kicked in. You know, I was I was 17. Yes, you heard that right. I was married young. Wow, so, yeah. Um, so, you know, I, w I was a young kid and, you know, with a baby and 
with this passion to ride motorcycles. And so I actually, um, <laughs> this is kind of a funny story, but I actually, like, you remember back in the day when they used to mail you the your refund checks, like your tax return refund checks? Oh, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm totally dating myself right now. So <laughs> way back in the day, they used to mail you your tax refund check. And so what I did is I needed a dirt bike really, really bad. So I think it was like our first or second year that we were married. I stalked my mailbox waiting for our, our refund check to come in. And so like I would check every day. And then it finally showed up, and I took it and didn't tell my wife at the time and went and bought me a dirt bike and kept it over at my buddy's house. And, oh, yeah, it was a mess. You did not that, tell your wife about it. I, I didn't tell her, man. <laughs> I, I swear. And then, like, so here's the craziest thing, right? So I, I buy the bike, and then I don't even tell her I have this bike until, like, three weeks before I do my very, very first race. Oh, you're kidding. And so it was kind of one of those those moments of, you know, she's pissed. And so I'm trying to deal with that. And then I'm nervous about racing for the first time. And so, yeah, like it was crazy. So like, it was February, it was like February tw um, 12th of, I think, 19, oh my God, I want to say like 92, 92 or 93. And it was just, yeah, just just a long time ago. And so... That's ultimately how I got into it. That's funny. How old were you when your dad bought you your first bike as a kid? Um, we were, man, I think I was like 13 or 14. Okay. And were you growing up so, in, a, in the countryside a bit where there was a lot of land to cruise around on? Uh, I mean, yes and no. I mean, it was. Um, I was actually living with my dad at that time. So my mother, she had, <laughs> so they had, uh, they'd got a divorce, you know, years before. And so, um, I was 13, 14 years old and it was my mom basically saying, all right, I love you, son. However, you're a pain in my ass. You need to go live. <laughs> you need to go live with your dad for a minute to try to, you know, knock out some of that crazy boy syndrome. And so, I mean, that's kind of what I did. And so I went to go live with him and that's, ultimately what we did on those days that uh, that he wasn't working and that he had off and that I didn't have school is you know we would have the opportunity to go ride and that was you know like between you know with me and my dad that was literally the only thing that him and I that was like that was the one thing that was just him and I and I like I'll remember that and never forget it for as long as I live awesome so that was kind of how you guys bonded yes yeah, fantastic. And tell us uh, the first race. So how do you even get signed up for a first race? You didn't have any sponsors, <laughs> I'm guessing, at that time, right? So No. Yeah, this was uh, this was like literally a Utah regional um, race that we did. It, it was, it's, so, it's called the Rhino Rally. I don't even know if they still do it. I think they still do it. But it was uh, – so it's in a place called St. George, Utah – um, it's the first part of February and yeah, like it's literally one of the, the roughest races of the Utah series. And, you know, I had some buddies that, that had raced, you know, previous. And, and so, you know, that's kind of how I knew about, uh, about the, the desert scene and how to, how to at least sign up for stuff. And it only took that one time. 
And once that one time happened, you know, I kind of knew the, the processes and I finished and the, my, my first race, which is actually, I know that probably doesn't sound like a big deal to, to a lot of people, but just to finish one of these races is a big deal. Oh, I'm so, so I, you know, I, I was able to finish it and I remember coming around the last few corners thinking to myself, holy cow, like you just went a hundred and something miles on a dirt bike in a race that you've never done before and like you did it and you didn't quit and you know i didn't place that bad and so it was from that point it was literally that day that race i haven't looked back since yeah so just a huge sense of accomplishment it sounds like and yes that uh wow that is really cool did your dad know about the race my dad actually passed away before I was able to him actually be able to watch me do oh, any of that no. stuff. So, okay. yeah, I was like, it, it was a huge bummer, right? Because, like, even now, there'll be times that I'll be in the, you know, I'll be in the trophy truck. We'll be out in the middle of the desert somewhere just bombing, right? We'll be doing, you know, 100 miles an hour across the biggest bumps you'll ever see in your life. And this thought of my dad will just pop into my mind. Yeah. And that that is... Like those moments, that's when I know that he is looking down going, keep that, keep the throttle going, baby. Like, let's yeah. do this. Like he's watching, right? That's awesome. Great. So he died when you were pretty young. How, how did he pass yeah. away? Um, cancer. So he had, okay. yeah, yeah he, he got stomach cancer and, you know, I, like, I remember the phone call and, and it was, um, it was, it was pretty rough, man. Not gonna lie, but yeah, that had to have been really rough. You were seventeen at the time, right? Seventeen, eighteen. And so I was, I was a little older when Dad, uh, when Dad passed away. Um, I, I actually think that I told him about the first race, but I don't know if we actually discussed it. Yeah, memories get it, blurred when we're our. Oh, no, dude, it's it's <laughs> it, yeah, it's so crazy, right? Like I'm 46 years old, and I feel like my mind is like 146. <laughs> I can't. So so through this conversation and through this uh, through this podcast, I do apologize for when I lose my train of thought because it will happen. <laughs> it no, will happen. No problem whatsoever. <laughs> no problem. But so, like you said, you've been racing ever since, and to this day, you're still racing. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, man. I don't, there, there hasn't been one year that's been, that's gone by in the last 30 that I haven't raced something. I mean, at least something. Yeah. And so, you know, you mentioned how incredible it was to get through that first race. And I know I remember you sharing with the crowd, share with us on the podcast as well. Some of your injuries, like this is a (laughs) tough, tough sport. (laughs) Yeah. It's, uh, it, it definitely can be brutal. So my my basic list of injuries are. Yeah, let me think. I am up to. Um, I think I'm up to 87 broken bones, 19 surgeries, um, 15, 15 or 16 plates, um, nine or 10 rods, a couple hundred screws. I've got cadaver parts, so I've got a heel bone and an Achilles tendon grafted to my tricep. Um, I've got Kevlar, uh, man, I've died twice. I've got thir- I've had 13 concussions that we know of. <laughs> yeah. You oh name it. Oh my God. And then so done that. do you remember the first time you had a serious injury? 
Yeah. Um, the first real bad one was in 2000. No, it was in 99 because the surgery happened in 2000. So yeah, 1999, I, um, was going, I was in Wells, Nevada of all the places, right? It's like the middle of absolute nowhere, but it was an amazing national race. And I had done really well the year before and I hate to lose. (laughs) So it was, you know, the starting lines up and they, without going into great, great detail of how they start these races, you basically have 400 goofballs lined up in a big (laughs) line and they have this banner that is about a quarter mile away. And when they raise the banner, everybody shuts off their dirt bike and that's kind of like the 30 second, like in 30 seconds, the race is going to start. And when they lower, when they drop that banner, you've got 400 guys, everybody starts their bike at the same time. And we're all going for the first turn, which is, (laughs) you know, I mean, it's, it's probably, it's probably maybe a thousand feet away. So, you know, quarter mile or so away. But you've got 400 people. <laughs> we're all on dirt bikes, and we're all trying to make that first turn because we understand that if you miss the first turn or if you don't get a good start, then you're going to be stuck in dust for the next six hours of your life, and you don't right. want. And, and you you don't want that. So they they dropped the banner, and I took off, and I was about I was running about sixth, and I was like I was so comfortable with that like in that position, I knew that I had more pace than the guys in front of me. And for me, it was a good start. So I was, I was in sixth gear as fast as the bike could possibly go right on the start. And right as I cracked the throttle, let off to set up for the first turn, I get clipped from behind. And next thing you know, I'm end over end and flying. And (laughs) so the dust, comes to like settle and I'm kind of looking around and I'm laying on my back and I'm looking around and thinking, all right, am I dead? Nope, not dead. Okay. I can feel my toes. I'm kind of doing this self check all the way through. And I kind of, I look to the left and everything's good. And I look to the right and I can see my left. I can see the palm of my left hand. The problem was, is I was laying on my arm. It wasn't on top of me. So I basically, if you can think of it this way, I hyperextended my arm, my elbow, all the way. So So it exploded my elbow, and I was laying on it. So I, when I kind of, when I realized what was going on, I jumped up, and I was pissed, ran over to my dirt bike, which was literally like a couple hundred feet away from me. Right. Ran and, over to the and ran, you got ran like over to the bike. you probably have like what uh, three hundred and ninety bikes coming at you. Oh yeah, they, well, <laughs> I mean, well, actually, by that time, I think most everybody had had gone around. But I mean, there was that that worry of getting ran over and, yeah. and stuff. And so I'm looking around and I run over to my bike. Well, when I went and like when I went and picked up the bike, that's when I felt my tricep completely like sever off of my elbow. Which is like the craziest feeling ever. It is like it is nuts, right? It will like it. The only thing, the only way that I can explain it is it's like taking a guitar string and pulling it until it breaks. Oh. It's it just like it's weird. So anyway, so 
I went to pick up the bike because I was still in race mode. I was still racing. And oh so I grabbed God. the bike and I, when I, I picked it up and when I felt the tricep kind of do its thing, like it was, it was pretty devastating to me. And so I dropped the bike and I looked around and I could see the guy who had kind of taken me out. And so I literally went on this dead sprint in the middle of a race. I went on this dead sprint, ran across the track and tackled this kid off of his dirt bike and started like literally beating him up. <laughs> I was so upset because he took me out of this race that I had been waiting for. And so as I'm kind of, you know, laying the smack down on this guy, I get tackled off of him. And it was one of the, it was one of the race directors. And he looked at me and he's like, dude, what are you doing, man? I'm like I'm beating up this guy. And he's like, no, no, no. I saw what happened and he totally gets what he gets. He goes, but you're hurt. He goes, when you were running over to this guy, your arm was flopping around like a wet noodle. Like, Oh dude, really? And that's kind of when I looked down and I like, I'm not joking, bro. Within a matter of 15 minutes, I was black and blue from my fingertips to my armpit. It was like, it was crazy. Do you think he went into shock? Oh, no, no, because I stayed and watched the race before I went to the hospital. (laughs) (laughs) And and so, and then, like, to top everything off, I was by myself as well. So it was like, it was me and my dog. And so I crashed. I get banged up. I then watch, finish watching the race. I then go to the doctor. They put me in a brace. I then drive home by myself with my dog. I wait two days before I go to the hospital because I just, I hate going to the doctor. Like I, I like, it's funny because I remember walking into the house and you know, my wife, um, my wife at that time, she looked at me and she's like, Oh God, what did you do now? (laughs) And I kind of turned, I turned to the side and she's like, Oh no. And it just, it was funny because like my arm was like the size of the house and I mean, she just knew that it was just me. It was, <laughs> he's going to go to the hospital when he goes. I can't force him. Like, if it hurts bad enough for him to go, he'll go. And it finally got to that point where it was like, all right, man, I got to go in. And I went in, and the, the doctor's like, oh, my God, what what are you doing? Like, this is the craziest thing we've ever seen. <laughs> like, you need, you need, like, immediate surgery right now. And I told him no. Oh, and the reason why I said no is within that next, uh, like within the next 60 days of my life at that time, I had two more races and I was going for the championship. And so I asked the doctor to please, and this is the, the ortho doctor. I asked him to please create this brace for me where we could attach the brace to my arm so I could at least have some type of stability why I raced and he looked at me and he's like, what, what, wait a minute. You're not talking now. Right. I'm like, no, bro. Like seriously, we're like, we're we're talking now. He's like, you can't race now. I'm like, well, you just challenge accepted. (laughs) And so, and so that's what they did. They, they actually, they made me this special brace and this was 20 years ago, man. Oh my goodness. I can't believe that. That's yeah, I know. So they made me this special hydraulic brace that they bolted onto my arm, literally, like literally bolted onto my arm. And I, the one 
race that I did, and like I finished and it was good. You know, I I think I was like fourth or fifth, and you know, I didn't I didn't podium on it. But the very last race, I had this brace on, and I was. This was about four weeks. No, this was three weeks after the initial crash. And I was a hundred and I think 190 miles into a 200 mile race. I had like 10 miles left. My hands were literally like bleeding through the blisters because I couldn't hold on anymore. And I had, I was at the home stretch, man. And I seriously, I crashed so hard because I couldn't hold onto the bike anymore. And I get up and like the, my arm is bleeding now where the brace had got ripped out of my arm now. And the, like the dirt bikes kind of, you know, twisted up and mangled. And I, dude, I finished the race, man. (laughs) I got on the bike. I started the bike and I finished the race. And, you know, I mean, I didn't, I didn't podium, but I did get, I didn't get my championship either, which really, like, really upsets me. But, <laughs> but I, I got third, you know, third in the championship for the year, and and I finished every race. Oh my god, so, that is yeah. a, that is a crazy story. So originally, my question was going to be, do you <laughs> like you have a serious injury like that? Like, do you still want to race? Well, clearly. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh gonna... yeah. Clearly. So, what is it that that makes you have like a pretty catastrophic injury with your arm flopping around that that puts like I don't know no fear in you like you just want to get up and get back on that bike? You know, I honestly think um, a few things. Actually, we're gonna go over my interpretation of me, right? Which oh, yeah. is which is the interpretation of myself is I literally have was born with no fear or another way that the doctors have described that is I do not assess risk and I do not understand the meaning of consequence. Okay. So, which I get, I guess, (laughs) I mean, I, as a young kid, I, I remember, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old being that kid that, if no one else dared to do something, they could look at me and they say, you know, they'd look at me and they go, oh, JP will do it. We were at like, uh, there's places around where I live where, you know, gr- you know, huge lakes and we'd go out skiing and like, you know, water skiing and stuff and we'd go cliff jumping. And I remember one year there was a cliff, we were at a scout camp and we had climbed all the way to the top of this cliff and they were, you know, all these kids were looking and, like, oh, man, this is really far. Who's going to do it? And they all looked at me, and they're like, oh, JP will do it. So I didn't even look, man. I just jumped. <laughs> well, the problem was is as I jumped, I'm, as a young kid, I'm like, oops, this was farther than I even thought. And I hit <laughs> I hit the ground, like I hit the water, and like the scoutmaster's yelling at me. And so when I land, I, I, I think I broke a couple ribs in like the bottom of my foot, but – so they get me into the boat and the scoutmaster was like, Hey man, like we need to see how far that was because that was crazy. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, what, how are we going to measure that? And one of the kids said, you know, we've got a hundred foot ski rope. Let's take it to the top and, and like, we'll dangle it over and we'll see how far it is. Cause you know, we could a you know, hundred feet, we can just minus however many feet off. So, 
I, I raise my hand, I'm like, I'll take it up. And they yell at me, I'm like, no, you stay right there. We have to answer to your mom, man. Like, your mom's going to kill us. So the kid gets all the way to the top, and they fling the, the rope off. And I remember the scoutmaster yelling, let it all out. And the comment, <laughs> it is. <laughs> it, was, um, it was about 135 feet. Oh. And, dude, like, way too far. Like, it was literally too far. Like, I should have been hurt worse than I was. But, but that's literally kind of like the story of how my life has always been, has always played out. I get to the ledge and I jump and I don't know the outcome. But, yeah, but, man, but like you I had that first land, man. <laughs> you hit that first uh, accident and your arms flopping around, and quickly you understand the serious consequences that could happen from a dirt bike, right? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, so absolutely. you hop back on that bike knowing, well, this could happen again. Who knows? Next yeah. it could be my leg. Uh, who knows, right? Well, uh, yeah. I mean, the it's the big one. Like even the, the truck. I mean, I think I – I mean, I'm 46 years old, right? This is the craziest thing because for the listeners listening, I want everybody to know that my mind still thinks I'm 18, Okay, like I am still 18 years old and it's my body's the only thing that kind of holds me down. And so, so being 46 years old, being closer to 50, I like, it was a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, I had one of the craziest crashes you'll ever see. Like, I mean, it, like a great crash. It was on TV. Like I've got it all right. I rolled the truck 13 times and, and like, a concussion and a bruised, bruised kidneys, bruised liver, you know, punctured lungs. And I still take off my helmet, jump into another race car and go race. Like <laughs> I, I don't, I don't really grasp the concept of, <laughs> of consequence and yeah. common sense. Sometimes wow. I get it. The so. other, the other thing you made me think of when you said like, the one theory is that you just don't register fear. I think that's exactly what they said about, I might get his name a little wrong, but Alex Honnold, the free solo climber that they've done uh, MRIs yeah. and, and they don't believe that he registers fear. So he does these incredible uh, climbs without ropes, climbs that people won't do with ropes. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So for those listeners who don't know about you yet, Justin, but do live with bipolar disorder. Yes, and I do. And you were diagnosed at the age of 26, if I got that right. Yeah, it was uh, 26, 27, roughly. Okay. But but I also understand that you had had symptoms for a much longer time than that. Yes. And, and, and so one of the things to, I guess, to kind of put into perspective is if you think about when I was 26, so 20 years ago, okay, even 20 years ago, the word bipolar disorder or the word mental health had such a negative connotation in the society that like we didn't even, we didn't even grasp the concept of what a mental disorder was 20 years ago. And this is only 20 years ago. So 30 years ago, 35 years ago, roughly, you know, when I was, you know, nine, 10, 11 years old. And at that age, when I'm going through the mind processes and 
ah, it's the craziest thing to think about at 9, 10, and 11, thinking about suicide and thinking about self-harm and thinking about the things that I did at that young age. Holy cow, right? Like It completely blows my mind away even now to think about that age because that's still the age of innocence. At age right? nine, you were having suicidal at, thoughts. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, at a very, very young age. I mean, I know that it was it was preteen. Yeah. That I that I had suicide thoughts, and so and I had I had thoughts of, oh man, I I don't want to say that it's so hard for me to explain because it's not. It's I guess it it all depends on the listener and how they can hear it, if that makes sense at all, but. In the depressive side of of things, when you're on the depressive side, you are not rationally thinking. Right. So it like depression doesn't have an age limit. It doesn't have these things that so many people put on what depression is. You know, this is this is something that I that I'll talk about that I I I promise I like I literally have never I don't think I've mentioned this at all to anybody. Um, dang it! I just lost my train of thought. Like how I did that. Age nine, <laughs> no problem. I'll try to bring you back. Age nine, thoughts of suicide. Thoughts of suicide. Okay, yes, yes. So, so this is the this is the craziest thing. I had someone tell me about a month ago that. They kind of looked at me and they gave me this little smirk and they said, man, it's all in your head. Okay, how many times have you heard that saying? Oh. It's all in your head. Right. Okay, well, I, I took that and it, they weren't meaning to be mean right. at all. Right? It, it, like it wasn't something that, that they were being just attacking or anything. They just said, man, it's just like it's just all in your head. And that I literally took three or four days to process that. And at the end of that three or four days, you know what? The right, it is all in my head because that's what depression is, man. Yeah. It's, it's a brain disorder. My brain is an organ. It's, I don't have control over how fast my heart beats or when it beats or how fast I breathe or when I breathe in those like, all the time, right? Like I can breathe fast if I want to, but my my point is is we don't always all like, we don't have control of our brain all the time, right? Especially and when so, we have a mental illness. Exactly. Yeah. And so when we have that and we can't control it, when we're in those moments, a lot of a lot of times we don't understand it, and we don't realize that we're in those moments. Right. And it's not it's not until we pull out of those moments that we're like, oh wow. Man, I was in a bad spot. Yeah, exactly. And that's why I you, get so frustrated. You've heard that, right? Oh, yeah. And that's why I yep. get so frustrated when some people say so-and-so chose to take their life. Well, they were uh, probably depressed, right? And going through yep. something where they weren't thinking logically. And depression is an illness, like you said, a brain illness, a brain disorder. And it wasn't really a choice if you're not thinking properly and your cognition and judgment and everything is so whacked out from the illness. It's not really that they chose that. Exactly. It's a side effect. It's, it's like chemo being the side effect or, or being uh, 
you understand what I'm saying. Oh, yeah. Chemo being chemo being the effective cancer, right? Yeah. So it's I hate to say it, but suicide is the effect of a disorder of a, of a mental disorder. Yeah. That's that's one of them. There are there are several several effects. Oh yeah. And and it's just like cancer in the in the way that that cancer doesn't kill everybody. Mental health doesn't kill everybody. Cancer affects one in three. Mental health affects one in five. It's the the correlation is is pretty crazy. This yeah. is one of the here's a statistic, and I and I am not a statistic guy. I hate to even bring this up, but this was just interesting to me because I think I read it a few days ago. One in three Americans will get cancer, right, in a lifetime. One in five Americans will have some type of mental disorder in a lifetime. Here's the crazy, the crazy um, statistic between um, in that. In the one in three Americans that get cancer in, in their lifetime, do you know at what age that usually starts? Mm. So instead of you guessing, I'll tell you. It sounds good. 50, 50. 50. Okay. So 90% of the people that are diagnosed with cancer are over the age of 50 years old. And then you go back to the one in three, right? So one in three Americans will get cancer, but not until 50. Right. However, however, mental illness, one in five Americans will have it. But we're seeing this more and more in our youth and more and more in the young adults than we've ever seen ever. Yeah, absolutely. So, so not only is it a bad thing, but it's affecting more people at a younger age. Yeah. So just kind of a just kind of a perspective thing. Yeah. So. No, that's that's a really good point. So if you uh, took us back to age nine when you were going through some suicidal ideation, were there reasons? I mean, if you look back, did you have like I know your folks were divorced when you were really young. Did you have a, mm -hmm. a challenging, difficult upbringing that that created these symptoms, or what else might have been going on? Well, so I was severely bullied when I was a kid. Okay. And I was I was a little guy. I mean, I'm still a little guy. I'm not gonna lie. I'm <laughs> five foot five. You know, I mean, I don't weigh much. It's you know, I mean, that's just that's part of the race car driver, you know, thing. It's race car drivers. We're not big guys, but growing up, I was severely picked on. I was, I mean, it was brutal, man. I. At the end of the day, kids are assholes. Like I, they're just brutal. And so, growing up, I had zero self-esteem, and I know it. Like I realize that now. And I tried for so many years to fit in, and I tried for the longest time. You know what, bro? I'm. This is this is a truth episode. This is like hashtag truth. I still struggle to to fit in and it's I just ah, man can't believe I just said that uh, and you I don't think, have to and I, you don't have to cut and you don't have to cut it out either man <laughs> I think there is I think there's awesomeness to being unique and different yeah you know I really do no well I mean if if everybody was the same how boring would this be ah this is this is another crazy thing. This is why people look at me and laugh a lot because a I think I'm pretty funny, but b my mind goes so fast that it's pretty hard to keep up 
my mouth has a hard time keeping up. And so I don't <laughs> expect everybody else to keep up. Yeah. See right there. I just lost my train. We'll think we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily people are listening to a podcast so they could slow it down. Yes, exactly. <laughs> oh my God. So, um, well you were really, you were talking about trying to fit in and, and getting bullied at age nine. So did you ever share the fact that you were getting bullied? Did you share with your folks or anybody at school? No. Oh, no, 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 no. So you bottled oh, heavens, it all no. up. Oh, yeah, man. Like, that's just that's just what you did. I mean, yeah. you, you bottle that up. And then there were times I remember an entire summer vacation, like uh, an entire summer um, break, like three-month break or two-month break that you get. I remember an entire break being – scared to death that this particular bully was going to come to my house and beat me up in my front yard. Wow. Rational thinking says that that would never happen. He lived so far away from me. Like he, I think he lived like 30 miles away from me. So where I went to high school, it was, I mean, Roseburg, Oregon, right? It was in the middle of nowhere. And so our school wasn't like where I live now, you know, where there's schools everywhere. This one school, I think the radius was like 50 or 60 miles. Right. So the one kid that I was having an issue with literally lived probably the farthest away that anybody could live away from me. But that irrational thinking, that a fear of oh, being yeah. scared, and that's just – that's interesting to me. Yeah. Well, that's you know, what... that, 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 that realization of like I just said – that I was scared, but we just talked about five minutes ago that I wasn't, that I didn't have any fear. So just interesting. I just kind of picked that one up. Yeah. Well, it's a different thing, right? I mean, that was being fearful fear. of bullies, of what yeah. could happen when somebody shows up at your door compared to you have a little, con a little more control on a, out on a cycle or on your, tr in your truck. Yeah. Um, were you having other symptoms of depression at age nine, suicidal ideation? I mean, were you going to school on a regular basis? Were you sleeping through school sometimes or any other symptoms? Yeah. So that's, and, and this is just, it's, it's, it's been an interesting process to me because, um, and I think this, you know, when you and I were, were talking at the conference, I think it was a lot that I explained that up until three years ago, Okay, like literally only three years ago, I was completely silent about my disorder. I didn't talk about it to anybody. Like my ex-wife, and <laughs> this is going to be funny. This is a joke. Ha, ha, ha. My second ex-wife too. She knows about it as well. But, <laughs> but other because <laughs> I like I'm totally single right now and, and stuff. But it's my first wife and my second wife, they both – went through the processes with me and lived it with me. Right. And so, uh, yeah, they both anyway. knew about your bipolar disorder. Yeah. They just, they, they knew it, but they didn't have a name to it because I didn't even have a name to it. Right. Right. And so, and it's, man, I mean, talk about such a hard, hard thing to, to try to explain to somebody that a, Okay, I'm a man, right? We're not supposed to cry. We're not supposed to be depressed. We're not supposed to have all these things. Okay, B, I'm young, right? Back, you know, way back in the day, you know, 25, 26, 20, 18, how old I was, 
I didn't want to talk about these things. I didn't want to cry about these things. I didn't want to be vulnerable about, uh, about the things that were physically going on that I had no control over and I had no clue why they were happening. Right. Right. And that it, it wasn't until three through maybe four years ago that I finally decided that, man, I, I, I can't live like that anymore. It's not fair to me and it's not fair to the people that love me. I need to be more open and honest with exactly what's going on. And because I've been able to do that, I'm not going to tell you, like I'm not going to sugarcoat it and tell you that life's been easier because it hasn't. It's been hard because I talk about it. Yeah. But it's been easy because I talk about it. Right. right. <laughs> Does that make sense? Oh, right? yeah, like, yeah, yeah, like yeah. It, we, we talk about this shitty thing, man. Like depression is a horrible thing. However, because I have bipolar or because I'm, I have a depressive side of me, it doesn't make me less of a human than anybody else. Exactly. And I feel, right, this is just my opinion, that I feel that I have been blessed enough with this gift of talking, this gift of storytelling. I don't know what it is, but I like telling stories. And I think I've, I've been blessed with that. And then I've also been blessed with a disorder. And I've been blessed with all these other things with life experience. And at the end of the day, this life experience has put me in a place where I feel like I'm able to go through my experiences and be able to talk about them in a way and on a platform and in an arena that other people need to hear what I'm talking about. Right. My main goal in life now isn't about finances and it isn't about fame and isn't about like, it's not about all of the materialistic goofball stuff for me. My life goal is to change this entire world in the way of bringing a positive influence to what mental health is. And that literally, when I wake up in the morning, that's what I, that's my focus. And when I go to bed at night, that's what my focus is. And I thank you. I mean, for you to have a show like this, man, like that means so much to people like me that when we deal with stuff, you have that voice. You're helping us have the voice, man. Right. High five. Like this is the, <laughs> this is the podcast high five right now. Ready? There it is right there. Love it. We just did that. We yeah. just did that. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, can you say a little bit more so listeners can understand why you say, and I heard you say it at the conference as well, that you really feel like you are blessed with bipolar disorder. Yes. So we all know that if we wake up in the morning and we have negative thoughts, most of the time we're going to have a negative day, right? We get that. And so going through, you know, books that, that people read, you know, about being successful and, and when I talk about success, I want, I do want everybody to understand that when I talk about success, I'm not talking about financial success. I do talk about just personal success in, in and of itself. But when I wake up in the morning or when I did wake up, when I used to wake up in the morning and, and think to myself, man, okay, I've got a mental disorder. That's okay. It's, it's, it's just a mental disorder. I can deal with it. 
I was, I was able to deal with it. I was able to take my meds and I was able to still live life. However, I changed the word disorder with blessing. And the reason why is because I, having a mental illness isn't a negative thing. It's not bad. It's not like it's, it's, A, it's something I didn't choose, but B, it's not a bad thing. So the reason why I call it a blessing is because I would not be the person I am today without the disorder. Right. The disorder doesn't define me. It's not like I don't walk around and bipolar is my middle name, right? That's, I'm not going on the definition of bipolar and, and Justin Peck as that. Right. But I also know that through my goofy little mannerisms that I have and my fast paced brain and this non-compliance of risk, right? Like all of these things. Yeah. That's, that's associated with the disorder, but that's also associated with me. Yeah. And why part I of am, who makes you who you are. Exactly. Yeah. It's why I'm a, as big of a goofball as I am. Right. And I love it. Yeah. I love it. Well, and, and I would like to add too. That it's just, it's given you different meaning in your life. Yes. Right? You are out there sharing your story. You're supporting others. You're, it's changed the trajectory of who you are and of what you do. Yep. I, you know, this is, it, it sounds goofy and it, like it may sound odd, but I mean, at the end of the day, for me, I'm, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to add value into this world i'm trying to add more value into this world than i take in payment right does that make does that make sense oh yeah that's awesome i i feel like i have been blessed enough in this life and i've worked hard i mean don't get me wrong like nothing's ever has been handed to me ever i worked really hard but because i was taught good work ethic and because i was in the right place at the right time and because I was able to see opportunity when it was there and available to me, I've been able to live a pretty awesome life. Yeah. And in doing so, I feel that now is my time to get back. Right. And that's what, I mean, that's, that's honestly what I'm doing. I mean, I'm not, I'm not doing, I didn't write the book to make money. I didn't like if people read the book, and then actually think about what type of heartache and pain I had to have went through to write everything down. <laughs> like common sense says, no, man, like no one's going to write that stuff down. But I know that it was worth the sacrifice for me. It was worth my personal sacrifice to be able to tell my story. So hopefully one day I can I can make it where that person doesn't go up the canyon. Doesn't? Yeah. Well, I know that doesn't make any sense to the no. listeners, but um, <laughs> but it, if I can just make it where someone thinks twice before they take their own life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's, that's, that's all I care about, man. Like, just think twice if there's if I can say something that just stops that process. Yeah, and then I'm, I'm sure doing you do. my I'm doing my part. Yeah. I hope so. Do you I'm trying, uh, man? Do you still remember the day that you were actually diagnosed with bipolar? Um, was there a time? Did you walk into a doctor's office and you had an oh, appointment yeah. and and they told you this is what it is? 
Well, so the the story is actually um, a little crazy. Well, I mean, like I most think it's of your crazy. stories. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I, I I don't know. This is probably the the one story that I actually think is pretty crazy. But um, we'll uh, I'll I'll blast through this one. Um, so your question is, how were you? Di- how was I diagnosed? Right. Yeah. So. Most of the time, and, and this is kind of what I've I've been seeing over the last you know three or four years, is people don't go to the doctor unless you're sick, and we know this from from our experiences. And so when it comes to the mental health side of things, people aren't typically diagnosed or even know what's going on with themselves until there is a pretty tragic episode right whether whether it be a suicide attempt or an overdose attempt or an overdose in general or something right yeah so mind my story basically is this i woke up a normal morning i am i was a construction guy um i had my own company and so i woke up and leaned over and kissed my wife took a shower, went upstairs, kissed the kids goodbye for school. Normal, typical morning. Okay. And I, like, I can't, like, I can't say that enough. It was a normal morning for me. And went out back, I grabbed my dog and threw the dog in the back of the truck. And we went out to check on our job sites. And about 30, 40 minutes later, I found myself driving up this Canyon that I drove up several several times and mostly because it was a place that i could get to when i got to the very top of the canyon i could look down over the valley it was a complete disconnect i didn't i didn't have to deal with the world i could it was just me and my dog and it was that like that place to me was my serenity well this particular time i'd made it to the top of the canyon i'd let the tailgate down dog was running around and Instead of being in that moment of trying to like collect my thoughts and be at peace with myself, I remember just watching my dog run around and her happiness. And all I could do was sit there and cry. Sorry. Yeah, no problem. All I could do was was go over the despair that I had, and I didn't understand. Like I didn't understand why I felt like I did, and so as I'm watching my dog run around in one brief irrational moment, and I can't emphasize irrational because it is not, it's not rational thinking. But I reached into the center glove uh, console of my, of my truck and I grabbed my pistol and I loaded it and I put it to my head and I pulled the trigger. And in that moment, it was the most incredible, yet the most devastating thing ever that's ever happened to me, ever. The adrenaline that I got from that moment completely pulled me out of this this depressive state that I was in and put me on this this different 
mindset that was something that I've never felt before. And it was amazing. However, I was still, I still had enough common sense that I knew that a, what I just did was wrong. <laughs> like that, like that's not normal. And B that the adrenaline that was coursing through my veins at that time was eventually going to go away. And when it did, I knew what was going to happen. I would try again. And so as I'm flying down the canyon, trying to get out of that space, I remember getting cell service and that's when I called my doctor. And when I said, hey, this is what I did. This is what I tried to do. I need to come and talk to you. And I drove straight to his office. And for that next two hours, I sat there and we talked about a lot of things. He canceled his day for me. And we felt, you know, I filled out all the paperwork and it was, that was kind of that moment of, hey, this is what I think you have. Like, I think you are a class one bipolar. So that's ultimately at the end of the day, that's, that's where I put the name to the face. Right. And like I said, it took a horrible moment. It took me wanting to end my life for me to get help. Yeah. Can you explain what, what happened? You, you pulled the trigger, the, oh, gun, yeah. the gun jammed. Yeah. So it was, um, yeah, I guess I did miss, I guess I did take out that important part because <laughs> well, we figured you're still here. Did, yeah, I'm still here. <laughs> it didn't go off. So, so th this was the crazy part about it is, so I pulled the trigger and I get the click, just this loud click. And I remember feeling pissed off because I'm thinking to myself, all right, you're a screw up anyway, JB. How in the world could you screw this up too? And so what I did is I took the pistol and I was thinking to myself, well, maybe you just didn't load it. So I chambered a bullet. And when I did that, the original bullet that was in there popped out. It flipped in front of my face and landed in my lap. I picked up the bolt that was in the chamber and I looked at it and I looked to the back of it and I'd see where the firing pin had actually hit the back of the bullet. Just for some reason, it didn't go off. I have shot thousands of rounds through this pistol. I still own the pistol shot thousands of rounds through this thing. And it's never misfired ever until the one time. And so I still have the bullet. I still have the pistol and it's yeah where do you keep the bullet <laughs> it in a, in a in my safe and i keep it for a few reasons but it's it's my never quit device i guess yeah it's it's that one item that i have that can bring me back to that that can bring me to a certain place in my life that that was the only time that I felt like I truly quit. Right. And it, because I don't feel like I'm a quitter, I feel like <laughs> I will do anything but quit. Yeah. And I just, I know that it was at that time in my life that I felt like I was willing enough to quit. And I don't, I don't want to do that again. Now, not saying I, I know that the way that I speak and I, 
you know, there's a lot of energy and there's a lot of, you know, I love talking about this stuff because it's, I think it's really, really important. But I also want people to understand and know as well that even though I sound normal, please keep in mind that the disorder doesn't go away. This is something that happens. It's a day in and day out thing. And I think that that's why mental blessings, mental disorders, mental illness is so hard for society to to grasp, to get the concept behind because it's something that is so hard to physically see. Right. Right? So I got to ask you though, so I understand you keeping the the bullet. Have you thought about getting rid of the pistol? Oh yeah. Constantly. And what makes you hold on to it? I mean, I get just get concerned, obviously, of you going through another episode where, like you said, this was a a moment where reality is out the window, right? Yeah. So what's to say that isn't going to happen again and you go and grab that thing again? So, Nothing. So, Truthfully. Yeah, so get rid of that thing. <laughs> here's here's the thing. This is, this is the way, and this is right or wrong, right? Like, th- these are... There are a few things that I don't talk about um, in my speaking and in, in the things in my like in the speaking and in the podcast interviews and things that I do, and I call them my three P's. Right? I don't talk about pills. I don't talk about profits, and I don't talk about politics. And it's funny because a lot of people don't understand that. Now, how does that? How does that? relate to me still owning the pistol. Well, if I'm not taking care of myself enough to put myself in that mindset to go down that road again to grab the pistol, getting rid of it isn't going to cure that. Meaning if that if the pistol's not there, I'll find another way of doing it. If I'm to that point that's why i'm talking about this that's why i'm speaking out that's why i'm trying to push the message out as much as i possibly can let's not get to that point let's talk about it let's have the conversation enough to where the irrational thinking doesn't even cross someone's mind right because they've got the coping mechanisms and they have those skills they have that skill set that they already know that they can be it. So I just want to push back a little bit only because, I, do. Only because I care about you. This is no, about no, me telling you do, what to man. do, but yeah. man, like, like you said yourself, when you described the story going to the top of the mountain, there was a moment of irrationality. Yep. And I'm concerned that if that moment is there and you have a gun within reach, that, that you may go for that in that moment of irrationality. Whereas if you did not have it, sure, you could do another thing, but it might mean like, well, now i got to run around and, and search for another thing to, to do. And, and by then, you, that moment of irrationality may pass. I, you know what? I like that mindset. So. <laughs> I, actually, I actually do like that mindset. And, and I get you've grown up, it sounds like, with guns and shooting, and, yeah. and I understand the appeal to that too. But it's just something, you know, I've always heard as an advocate, like, make sure if somebody is suicidal to remove 
guns from any home. Or no, access. of course. Well, and it's 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 removing it's removing any vice. Yeah, I any guess type you of know access. what. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, you know, it it it's an interesting thing um, that you that you talk and you've asked the questions like you have. I will. And here again, this is the hashtag truth, right? This is yeah, the truth that's episode, what this bro. Is about, man. <laughs> yeah, this is the hashtag truth episode. I, I typically will tell my suicide story just like I tell it. I never have gone into depth and detail. Wow, like like ever. Yeah. Um, I told you I might push you. No. And I'm glad, like, it's just like I told you, it's, it's these type of conversations. These are the type of conversations that change views, that change perceptions, that change the world. Right. Right. This isn't scripted and people know that it's not scripted. This is, this is two rad dudes talking about life and talking about things that affect people. And talking about ways of bringing amazingness to the people that surround us and love and help and support and all these amazing things, right? This isn't a podcast about about negativity. This is a podcast about bringing truth and light and amazing, wonderful things to everybody, right? I mean, that's... Oh, yeah, absolutely. I've met you. I've shook your hand. I've given you a hug, brother. Like, I know... Like, I know what type of person you are, and you know what type of person I am. Oh, yeah. And I think what's crazy about that is because we have these personalities and because we feel like we have the information or or ex, or life experience, we want to share that, brother. Like, we want to share that with everybody, and we don't have this lame celebrity fame money like bullshit that's wrapped up into things right we do it because we want to generally help yeah. man i applaud you for that man yeah, thank like, you ah, <laughs> thank you thank amazing. you hey since uh while i'm pushing you here and you mentioned the three p's i'm curious <laughs> why pills is something you don't like to talk about i'm not a doctor okay I got you. Cause I that agree. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I agree. Like I never want to tell somebody whether or not they should take a medication. I don't mind exactly. telling people that I'm taking a medication. What I do always try to tell people is one, if you're going to take medications or consider it work with a doctor, whether it's your family yes. doctor or a psychiatrist, don't ever get off of them without working it through with a psychiatrist or your doctor. And then finally, I always ask people don't judge Right. If you're anti-meds, that's fine. But don't tell somebody else that they shouldn't be on their meds. It's a difficult choice deciding meds or not that deal with your mind. And I don't think anybody takes it very lightly. But please don't judge somebody for their decision. I would never judge somebody who who doesn't want to take meds. That's great if they can survive without it. And if somebody's taking meds, that's their choice, too. And hopefully they've done some research on it. I do get surprised when I have guys on the show who don't know any idea about why they're taking (laughs) which meds. That always kind of surprises me, and I always urge them to talk through it with your doctor, understand why you're taking which meds. But that's about the extent of my conversations around pills. 
Well, and, and I, I think honestly, the, the main reason why I don't talk about pills or medication is because I like, I'm not joking when I say that I literally have taken all of them. <laughs> I have, I have been prescribed every type of medication for depression and for manic and for schizophrenia and for, and for, and for like, you name it, right? right, it's, right. it still goes on and on and on. I, I will talk about it to the extent of saying that I have taken a bunch of things. I will say that I have, <laughs> okay. See how Has, I paused there for a minute. Truth, man. Yeah. Hashtag truth. All right. <laughs> I, I will, I will say this and, and it's just because I'm going to say this, <laughs> I will be, I will be truthful. So, um, a few years ago, um, when it, when it came to like the med types of things, I have never been able to sleep well ever. And so I've lived most of my life with only getting a few hours of sleep a night. And when I'm in a manic phase, I'll be lucky to get 30 or 40 minutes of sleep. Wow. So I will go months and years like this and then it finally catches up with me so long story short i was on the big pharma stuff for sleep and i was taking enough to literally kill a small tribe right <laughs> like but it was what i needed to be able to sleep for a couple hours now this is my disclaimer i'm not saying i'm not <laughs> Uh, what, what, what am I not saying? You're here? not a doctor I'm, and you're not telling I, people yeah, what to do. I'm not exactly. I'm not a doctor. and I'm not telling people what to do. I'm telling, I'm just explaining what has helped me. So being a, being a professional race car driver, like we get drug tested. And so all of the, the drugs and all like, I'm the people that I can't believe I'm saying any of this stuff. This is awesome, hey, dude. I, I, wanna, is, no, no, this, I, this I do want to tell you not show. to say something that's going to put you put you in jeopardy oh, no. of your uh, racing. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> so no, don't sit no, here and tell us you're no. smoking weed and shooting up if that's going to get no. you booted off the... Uh, <laughs> okay, so I'm not shooting up, but I will <laughs> tell you, brother, like I, I actually started smoking a little bit of cannabis and... So I smoke a little bit of weed. I take smooth, two small hits of weed at night just to sleep. And I will tell you that I have never slept better in my entire life than when I do that. So I, I, I might smoke once, maybe twice a week just to get my sleep in. Right. And so I, it's crazy that I say that. But, but I'm okay with that because my racing on the racing side of things, the people that need to know already know. I've already explained that to them. And what's really, this is what's really awesome about like what's happening with some things are that some of the medications when used properly, when used in the direction and under the direction of a doctor can do amazing things. So ketamine's another one, right? Under the right direction of a doctor I'm reading the statistics on ketamine. I mean, if they're saying a 70% success, success rate, dang, man, like, it's 
it's intriguing to me. Oh yeah, and, and that if people don't know, that's been recently approved by the FDA. Yep. Um, and it is typically used for drug-resistant depression. So if a patient yep. has tried two or more meds and haven't responded well, and also to squash the suicidal ideations. Yep, hands down. So with you saying that, and I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit, what's your opinions of ketamine? I don't think I know enough about ketamine. I'm thrilled that it That's is in, in an entirely new classification of drugs. So I'm wondering if it's going to open up the doors to others. And I'm all for exploring and experimenting on it. Research on psychedelics, I think that's fantastic if they're researching it and if they can find out that microdosing works. And, yep. Um, you know, I don't want anybody to stop. You know, nobody's really looking at antidepressants anymore, developing more. So I know. we need them doing something for us. Yeah, exactly. Like, like So at the end of the day, even though I don't talk about the medication, it's still a huge part of things. Right. So yeah, I may not get down to the you know the, to the to the nuts and bolts of exactly what I take and milligrams and, and those right. type of things. Right. But what but what I do talk about is just like you said, don't stop taking your meds just because someone says you shouldn't take your meds. I mean, right. for hell's sakes, man! Like, come on we still have to use some common sense when we do this. It's, it would be like, it's, it's like killing a diabetic. Okay. You know what? You don't need insulin, dude, yeah. stop. You know what? Throw your pump away. You don't need that. Right. Okay. Right. It, it, like it's, we're not saying that you and I are not saying yeah. that we're just what we are saying. Okay. Let me rephrase that. What I am saying is that if we can do it in a, responsible way if we can do it in so like for for example ketamine i went through the protocol i have done the ketamine i have done the six sessions and i did that because i was in a moment of i needed help and and i will say that it hasn't been that long ago either <laughs> and Okay, you know what? I'm gonna actually go back a little bit farther. Al, when was when was the first time I was supposed to be on your show? <laughs> yeah, right. Good point. Right? It was just a few weeks ago. You were supposed to be on the show, and yep. I was told you were actually hospitalized. I was really and sorry to is, hear that. And that is a very, very, very true statement, right there. Right. And I will tell people, and it's you know what the embarrassment factor, whatever. Like I don't care, man. Like you. People can judge me for whatever I am, right? They can look at me and they can see this goofball kid that has a mohawk and a bunch of tattoos and, like, whatever. They can judge me. That's fine. They don't have to live in my shoes, though. Right. And that's the, and that's the, that's the big difference. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What was it uh, that brought you to the hospital this few weeks ago? So it was, um, it, it was the depression. I mean, I was to that point. So it's, it, it's an interesting how, when we were talking about the pistol and you asked me why I don't get rid of it. So honestly, the reason why I don't get rid of it is because I know for a fact, I know for a fact that I will never go down that road again. Now you could ask and the listeners could ask, well, how do you know? Because you just got done saying that it was irrational, right? I get that. I totally get that. But there are just a few things that I know 
that I'll just never do. I know for a fact that I will never, ever, ever shoot myself. I just know it. And so a few weeks ago, and it, I think it was a little longer than that, I, like, I still struggle with the depressive side of things. It doesn't go away. And we were scheduled, so we, we did the, um, we were at the Mental Health America Conference, I mean, an amazing experience, and was scheduled to speak with you. The, <laughs> the crazy thing about these conferences and these speaking events that I get to do is when I'm, when I'm there, I have to immerse myself in the disorder. To be able to convey my message, I actually have to live each moment. And so when I'm at these conferences and when I was at this, this conference with you, I talked about all of the disorder and the suicide and the addictions and like everything that's associated with the mental disorder. I talked about that for three full days straight. Right. Well, when I got home, holy cow, brother, the come down off of that was pretty brutal. Hmm. I, when I'm on stage, I can, I can tell, like, I can tell you that it is the same adrenaline. It's the same love. It's the same desire as I have when I'm racing. It gives me that same feeling as when I put on the helmet. The difference is the adrenaline, when it goes away from the car, it's like, all right, it's a bummer. I can jump back in the car again. I can't necessarily just jump on the stage and speak again. So, but I, what happens is I talk about it and I speak about these experiences and these life changing moments. Well, when I do that, I relive that. So when I do that for three days, it was a pretty rough come down. Right. And I think, I think I got home on a Tuesday and I think I was, I think I self-admitted two weeks after that, maybe a week after that. And it's not because I was weak. It's not because I was being a, a baby. It's not because of any of that. It's because I knew that I needed help. Yeah. Now, and I would say that is about the strongest thing you can do because it's not easy. It's not. Right? It's easier to sit down in the basement in the dark and, and, you know, do nothing about it, which is very dangerous, but, yep. but it is courageous to walk in and self-admit like you did. Well, that is one of the things that has taken me a long time. Honestly, like it's taken me a long time to take the ego and take the pride and just throw it away. Yeah, is understanding, man, is like asking for help is not a bad thing. Right. Having people around you that love you and care about you is not a bad thing. Shedding a tear in front of somebody and having emotion, man, is not a bad thing. We're human. That's what makes us human. That's what brings our unique qualities out. And when I'm able to do that, for me personally, I feel that with my personality and the way that I talk and speak, I feel that I'm able to touch other people. Just like you are able to speak and touch other people as well. I've listened to so many of your podcasts. 
Yeah, thank you. And and your guests and the people when they're on, man, it's the passion for creating this environment or creating this space of of non-judgmental, non-ego like it's it's this amazing space that we can talk about and the people that are able and willing to listen to what we have to say and then when they can take that and use that to benefit other people around them man i just i see this pyramid effect i see this this you know what you and i are doing and then hopefully we can move on to the next level and the next level and the next level and in 20 years from now I am hoping that we talk about mental health just like we talk about diabetes and just like we talk about cancer. Right. That is what I want. Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, I think we haven't used the word yet, but I think what it boils down to is shame and we shouldn't have shame. Right. Like, and, and I, I mean, I had a ton of shame. I've talked about it a ton on the show how I would tear up my prescription paperwork when I got home or mm-hmm. I'd look at the store and be like, oh, crap, anybody at this pharmacy from my neighborhood? Like, yeah, I had such shame. But if you had, you know, you were comparing it to other illnesses, if you have cancer, diabetes, nobody's shameful of that. Right. So exactly. why is it that we are so full of shame around a mental illness? It's really interesting. Well, and I think it goes back to almost how I started this conversation of where I had that one person tell me it's just in your head. Right. Yeah. Well, my God, that, yeah, you can't physically see what's going on. You're right. It is in my head, but my brain is also an organ just like my heart. Oh yeah. So yes, it is all in my head. So when people tell me, stop, you know, don't do this, like change this. It's just in your head. You're right. It is in my head, but I need to change the way that I cope with it. Right. Not I, because I can't change the way that my brain fires and the way that the chemicals are released. And I can't like, I I can't change that. So it's my coping mechanism is it's, it's the way that I, it's the way that I cope with those, the mental things. It's the same way that chemo affects a cancer patient. Right. That's my prescription is my coping mechanisms. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, at one point you said through a mania, you may literally have 30 minutes of sleep at times. Can you describe a mania? So the listeners get a sense. (laughs) What is a mania? Tell us about one of your extreme manias. The best ride ever, ever, ever. <laughs> oh my gosh, dude. It is mania. Um, yeah, I mean, that's it though, right? It, it feels think. good, right? I mean, it's, I've heard, it, 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 yeah, I've, it's the I've most amazing thing say, ever. Yeah, I've heard people say, I don't want to take my meds when I'm going through a mania, especially because they've been through enough depression that a mania is like, awesome. Why yep. take medication? Why do anything about it? So this is the way that I've always explained it to people. Depression is for the user. Mania is for the public. Now, let me break that down a little bit. Please. Depression is for the user. Depression usually only affects the user. So me, my depression affects me. I stay in bed. Yes, it affects my loved ones and it can affect work. 
for the most part. But for the, all in all, depression affects me. Right. However, mania affects the public. So when I'm in a manic phase, I, I'm feeling the best that I've ever felt in my life. It's the people around me that can't handle me. So in depression, so in depression, I can't handle myself. In mania, people around me can't handle me. And what is it about you they can't handle? And I am a ball of fire. <laughs> I am. I have made more money. I have more. I'm more creative. I am one hundred percent go 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 all of the time. Well, there is only so much that people can handle. There is a reason why I am why I am single. Like why I don't have a girlfriend. Well, I mean, I do have a girlfriend now, but why she doesn't live with me full time? <laughs> I am a I'm a handful. I get it. In the mania side of things, it's popping up out of bed at three thirty in the morning and having this amazing idea, and then not sleeping for three or four days because I'm on the computer creating stuff, or I'm in. The grocery store, right? This is, this is how mania works. I could be in the grocery store and have this crazy amount of energy go through my mind. And I'll go around and I'll just start talking to people. I'll have in my mind that I want to talk to people and I'm trying to do things in a way that I want to brighten their day. I want to say hi or I want to give but when you're in a mania phase, you act crazy. I don't know if that makes any sense. No, it does make sense. I know that it makes <laughs> sense. But you act a little goofy. And people don't know how people don't know how to react to that. It's like when you see someone in a wheelchair. People stare. They just do. My brother, my so my youngest brother actually, um, he actually overdosed when he was 21 and, and died. Oh, my, my, my middle brother, he crashed on his dirt bike eight years ago. Um, and that's a story. Holy cow, that's a story. But long story short, he crashed on his dirt bike about eight years ago, um, broke C4 and is a quadriplegic. Oh my goodness. Okay. Nate crashed on his bike eight years ago. Ashwin, so the baby was a couple months old. He had barely got married. So we're talking, you know, 21, 22 year old kid with a brand new baby that's now a quadriplegic. Oh my goodness. I, that was crazy for me to watch. And to go through this experience with him, I've spent countless hours at the hospital with Nate. I have spent countless times fighting with people because I watch them stare at him and I watch them whisper behind his back. And I think to myself, wow, I used to be one of those people that would talk about people in a wheelchair. That's why I made that comment. Right. That's why I made that's why I made the wheelchair comment because it's not necessarily I feel like I have the right to talk about someone in a wheelchair because it has nothing to do with the, whether I have the right or 
to or not to. I just have experience with that. I have experience with my brother being a quadriplegic and having people talk ab- about him like he's not even there. Right. Now, in your past experiences, how many times do people talk about mental disorders like they don't exist? <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. They're here, folks, right? Like mental disorders, it's what happens. It's part of society. It's part of what what's happening. Don't stare at me because I have a disorder. Be the support with me. Help me create the message. It's just, it's, it's just interesting to me. If you're going through a mania and you are with a friend, do you expect the friend to say, Hey, Justin, man, I think you're in the midst of a mania, or would that be offensive? Not, it, it won't be offensive at all. Okay. And, and believe it or not, I believe, and I, I can't speak for everybody, but I believe that most people, most, most people, while they're in their mania phase, want to know that they're in the mania phase. They want to know where that limit is that they're pushing too far. Does that, does that make sense at all? Yeah, so, yeah. And you think I, it would it, make sense to them if, if somebody like grabbed you, a buddy especially, somebody who knows you and was like, Justin, hey, man, I think you're, you're going into one of your manias, that you would be able to register that and be like, oh, crap, that's what's going on. And yes. maybe adjust a bit? Do you think that's yes. even possible? Really? Cool. Yes. And, well, and the reason why I know that I can do that is because that's what I do. Okay. I, I have, there are four people in my life that know exactly how I am and they know of the triggers or the certain things, the certain characteristics of my personality that when I start going down a certain path, they know exactly, Hey JP, you're doing this just so you know, you're doing this. Oh, okay. And the reason why they know to tell me is because I have made it a point to let them know I need you to tell me if I'm doing this or if I'm doing this or if I'm doing this. That is awesome, and I think that's really important. And I actually did that with a buddy who I know lives with bipolar disorder, and I said, you know, I haven't noticed it, but if I ever feel like you might be in the midst of a mania, would it offend you if I mention that or, or is that helpful? And he definitely said, yeah, let me know. So Helpful. I like to get that permission ahead of time, too, right? Yeah. So that I know, and we've talked about it when he's not in the midst of a mania or a depression, so that I know I've got his permission to ask in a helpful way. See, so, and, and, and that's, inter- that's awesome, dude. Like, it's, a, it's crazy how, that you say, how you said that, though, the permission side. Because I respect that. Like, I really, really, really respect that. On the flip side of that, you're his friend, right? So he was able or willing to give you permission right? to say, hey, man, like, you're my buddy. And so, like, if I'm being a jerk or if I'm doing this or if I'm acting goofy, like, hit, like tell me. In a support system setting, would you ask permission like generally i'm putting you on the spot a little in bit. a supportive setting meaning like a, if i was in a clinic or a hospital 
Yeah, yeah, like like a, like a clinic, no. hospital, a no, forum. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't ask anybody for you, permission. You, I would expect you, that they would tell me. Exactly. Yeah. Now, now, why don't you think? And I and I don't know because I this I, this is a truthful question for you because yeah. like you're in this, you've been in this space longer than me. Why aren't why aren't we? And I'm not necessarily pointing out you and I in general, but like we as messengers of that, why do we feel like we have to ask permission? Because I kind of feel the same way. I'm not going to lie. When I talk to other people about bipolar, I feel like I have to ask them permission first to talk about their disorder, even though I deal with it every day. Yeah. I think my, my perspective, if you're asking for my answer is just that one, I don't live with bipolar disorder, so I don't really know what it's like. And two, I would want to make sure that, that he would know that if I ever asked, it wasn't something in jest, like, wow, that's a little weird. What are you going through a mania? You know, I would never want him to be fearful of that. Like I would sincerely ask him and I think he would know that. But then again, I don't know what it's like to live and be in a mania and I don't know. Yeah, so I guess I was kind of saying, how do I support you in a mania, and would this be helpful so that Dude, I'm kind of learning about it? Yeah. Well, no, and, and see, and and that's what's awesome about this whole thing is I'm learning as well. Right. This right. Uh, this this whole process for me, these interviews, these speaking, the book, the, the whole, it's all learning. Yeah. And it's lear- and it's learning from a guy that lives with it too. Right. Right. And because I don't have all the answers and I want them, but I know that I'll never be able to get them. Yeah. And it's because it's, it's the brain. It's because we know that the brain is so big and we only use such a small amount of it. And like, this is factual. These are scientific proven things. Oh yeah. And then when we get to the point where, it's so factual that they know enough about the brain that they understand that they don't know anything about the brain. Right. Right. <laughs> that's right. that's what I think is funny. Yeah. Is we know enough to know that we don't know anything. Yeah. And so it takes people like you and I to go through the life experiences and to be able to talk about it to write the medical journals about mental health. I honestly believe that that's what we're doing. I think guys like you and I and people that are in the mental health space, we are writing the new medical journals on how to treat mental disorders in 20 years, in 30 years. Yeah, I think you got a really good point there. I've never I've never made that point any like that was the first time I've actually ever thought about that. I so think it actually, makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. Like it does make sense to me, so it's hey, um I th- Tell us, uh, you are a Mental Health America ambassador, right? Yeah. Can yeah, you tell, actually, us, uh, tell us what that means and when you became an ambassador? So Mental Health America, my good heavens, what an amazing organization. So um, they're the longest um, or oldest acting mental health foundation in America. I mean, they're, they're just amazing people. And so uh, they hit me up a couple years ago. Um, they were looking for an ambassador, and I don't fall in the typical ambassador <laughs> type genre. I guess I 
I don't fit in with corporate America. I, like I said, like I'm full blown Mohawk and tattooed everywhere. I can attest to the fact that you don't look like corporate America. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Like I do not look like corporate America. And so it was, it's not that I'm anti-corporate America because I, I, I have companies. I mean, I'm, I'm a business owner, so I live it, but, but I, I also know that the corporate America feel is not my, like not my true personality. So, so what was your question again? I'm sorry. I lost my train of thought. Oh, no problem. How you became a mental health America ambassador. So they, they hit me up a couple years ago and it, man, just the craziest things when I was supposed to go down. And so I was supposed to speak at their conference last year. Okay. And I didn't because I was self-admitted again. Right. And that was a hard one for me because I had the opportunity to speak at this big conference and be this ambassador. Yet my brain was letting me down yet again. At least I thought at that time. Right. And it was letting me down and I was very, very upset. And that one was a hard one for me because it was, I wanted to be on stage so bad and talk and talk about these things and, and help and be a beacon for other people. Yet I couldn't even be a beacon for myself. Right. And so at that time I was you know, I, we, we were talking to MHA and I, I just, I couldn't at that period. So last year they hit me up about the same time and they, you know, they were like, Hey, you know, we're looking for a unique ambassador, someone that has more of a, <laughs> more of a, a rock star feel, I guess. And I'm not a rock star, man. Like I'm not, I'm just a normal goofy kid from Utah. Like I am, I swear. But I, they, they wanted someone that I think, and this is just an opinion. I don't, I don't know this factual, but they just, I think they just wanted someone that at the end of the day, didn't care about the ego anymore. Wasn't afraid to cry on stage anymore. Like it's still embarrassing to me. Don't like, I'm not going to say that it's not when I am on stage and I get something that hits a, a nerve with me and, and I get a little emotional. Yeah, man. Like it embarrasses me. I'm not going to lie, but it may seem goofy and it may feel goofy, but I still do the thing, man. Like I still do it because if people are going to judge me because I shed a tear on stage, I don't need them in my life if that's what it is. I want people that support me and I want people that have the same core value in messaging that I do. Right. Those are the people that I care with what, ah, see, I shouldn't even care about what other people think. We all care about what people think. Let's be (laughs) honest, right? We all do. Well, just so you know, as somebody in the audience, I felt like when you got emotional at Mental Health America sharing your story, it was all the more real, it was all the more raw, and it was all that more compassion I felt from the crowd towards you and and trying to understand what you had been through. 
Like it was real. Yeah. And that's what, uh, brother, that's, that's what people all I need. know, man. I mean, honestly, that's all I know now. I, I the the truth side of things and the honesty side of things, that's all I know. Yeah. I and and the reason why I say it like that is because if you were to ask me that question five years ago, I would have told you I would have looked you straight in the face, brother, and said, I'm not bipolar, what are you talking about? Right. I'm not depressed. Mania, what do what are you talking about, man? Like go away. Like, don't talk to me like that. I, I, I was that guy. Right. Because I refused to be someone that had, man, I don't want to say compassion for others because I felt like, I feel like I've always been a giving person, but I didn't want to give that of myself. Right. I was scared, man. Like I was, I was fearful of being judged. I was fearful of what other people thought of me. Yeah. And, and, and here again, like I say, it's not necessarily that I, that I don't care what people think because I still do. We all do, but I don't think I care as much. Yeah. It, and you don't care to the point that it's going to change you from doing what you believe you need to be doing. Exactly. Yeah. And, and at one point in my life, it did. And I will be the first to raise my hand and say, yes, other people in this planet affected the way that I did things. Right. And I'm but certain I you're not the only one. Yeah. Well, and that's just it, though, is when I say that truth, when I say that, I know for a fact that I'm not the only person on this planet that's felt that way. Right. And you <laughs> saying it allows has. others to get the courage to say it themselves. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And that's like, that's what I'm hoping. And like, if we can all get on the same page, if we can all face in the same direction, yeah, then we can all hear each other. So I want to hear about your book. Tell us a uh, bulletproof. And like I said, it is a page turner. I have not read <laughs> it from cover to cover yet. I will. F absolutely. But anytime I pick it up, I get sucked right into it. Share with us about your book. The book was, uh, that was a process, brother. Like, holy cow, that was a process. Did you work so, with somebody on it, or was this all just you? So it started all with me, just all me. So a little bit of my educational background, I barely graduated high school. I think I graduated with like a 1.7 GPA. I basically graduated with like a point one higher than what you needed to actually <laughs> physically graduate. So um, I'm not an educated man. I, I, I'm not. I'm not a book smart person. However, I do feel like I have a lot of life experience. So when my youngest brother died, when he, when he overdosed, at the funeral, I was sitting next to my grandmother and she – you know, I mean, it was an emotional time. I did, Kobe was 20. I mean, he hadn't even hit 21 yet. I mean, hadn't even lived yet. Yeah. And so grandma was, you know, I was sitting there talking to grandma and she, she's like, look, I mean, this is why you need to write down things. And she looked at me and she goes, you really just need to write down day-to-day -day things, keep a journal, keep whatever, you know, whatever you call it, but write down your life. 
Well, I took that comment that Gamma made and played with it for, you know, a couple weeks and really thought of what, all right, what does that mean to me? And so I started writing things down for one sole purpose and one only, and it was to give my children. So I have four children and I have four grandchildren as well. So, but to give my four children an idea of what their dad's mind processes was when I was their age. So meaning I was writing my thoughts down when I was 30 and 35 so that when my children were 30 and 35, they could read them and maybe they could understand what it was like to be their dad at that age. So to put that in another way, for those of you that have children or even us, I mean, think about it. When we're eight, nine, 10 years old, we have no concept of what our parents are going through. We have no, like we have no, we can't even fathom what it's like to actually be an adult. Right. Absolutely true. So that's what I was, that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to write down my adult thinking (laughs) so that when my kids became adults, they could relay it. That's really cool. So, (laughs) So it had no, like there was no idea of writing a book. I had no, like there was no mindset of writing a book. I just started writing things down. So I write and write and write and write and write. And literally almost 10 years, I finally have this huge document on my, on my computer. I'm like, wow, it's a lot of pages, it's like 370 pages or something. And I'm like, wow, this is crazy. And, and I started reading it a little bit and then I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to send it to a book editor to clean it up a little bit because here again, non, non-educated, I, I'm sure my grammar needs a little, you know, fixing a little bit here and there and punctuation. And so I sent it to the editor and they literally called me back like a week later and said, Oh my God, man, like this is incredible. That is so this cool. needs to be a book. I'm like, nah, I'm was not, this I'm not just a cold? That. You didn't know the guy at all. The editor, you just, Found somebody online. Okay. Yeah, that's that's basically. I think it was actually like booksonline.com or something. (laughs) Like it was something goofy. Like it was. I I think I spent like the forty nine ninety nine trial. We're gonna edit the first like ninety. It literally it was something stupid like that. So, so they send it back, and I'm like, oh, well, you know what? Maybe I have something, and and then that's when I ended up talking to my PR and then my PR put me in touch with a ghostwriter to help clean things up on the editing side. And Holy cow, man, that was four years ago. And talk about a life changing experience. We've went from not talking about it at all (laughs) to only focusing about racing and, you know, having that be, when I was on TV or when I was on camera would be only for my racing. Well, now it's, now I get to be on TV, you know, with the racing, but then I also get to speak on stage in front of, you know, a bunch of people because of the other passion and because of 
the disorder side the side of things and so like it's it's just it's been amazing it's it has been a ride but it has been an amazing ride how uh do you have a little elevator speech or something to describe your book i mean it's t- it's essentially <laughs> a memoir of your life correct yeah that yeah that that's honestly that, that that's all it is i yeah. mean it's it's stories of just my experiences and that's because I ultimately think that's how we teach the best or that's how I've always been taught is through experience. And so if, if I can help others through my experiences, uh, I feel that that's the best way to teach. So, I mean, the book goes over addiction. I, I had a severe opiate addiction, uh, based on me crashing on a dirt bike like it it was crazy and i i mean i was taking massive amounts of oxycotton a day and i quit cold turkey in the middle of alaska like that's a story in and of itself <laughs> i'm not going to i'm not going to tell you that story you'll have to read the book on that one but like so there's I guess what I'm getting at is, and this is not by choice, like, please keep in mind, I'm not self-sabotaging myself. I, I don't want to have to have friends that have committed suicide. I don't want to have to have, <clears throat> this is hard for me because it's, I have daughters that have mental disorders and to be a dad and to have your daughter look at you in the eyes and say, Dad, I don't want to be here anymore. Okay, those are moments that are heart-wrenching oh for me. God, yeah. That only a dad could explain that to another dad. Right. Okay? You can't read those experiences in a book and actually get the concept or grasp the actual like emotional feeling behind that. Mm -hmm. Well, if I'm able to explain that to a parent or a dad, what it's like, because I actually deal with it and not deal with it because it's not, it's not a negative thing. I actually, it's an honor for me to be able to have this disorder and then also be able to be able to talk to my daughters and my children about the disorder when they're struggling. Absolutely. That's that's huge for me. That's a massive gift to your kids. And that alone is going to go, you know, miles in supporting their mental health to know that their dad's been through it. Dad says we should talk about this stuff, you know, and be open to listening to them and supporting them. That that's huge. And it's crazy because I'm still the dad. They still don't listen to me. <laughs> they don't. It's funny. Yeah, like, my kids it, aren't it, supposed to listen to you. <laughs> no, they're not. They're just, they're not at all. Wow. So how do people get their hands on the book? Uh, so the book, you can get it on Amazon. Um, uh, we're there. And then at uh, justinpet.com, you can buy it on the website. And um, we're not quite on Audible yet. Uh, we're in that process. But yeah, Amazon, um, Barnes Noble, um, and the website. Website's probably the best, um, justinpeck.com, mostly because there's other resources there. Yeah, uh, great. The, the, the website has the resources on 
um, where you can take the online quizzes to see, you know, where you're at on depressive or mania or those type of things. And what I would like to say on that is none of it goes through me. It is landed on my, on my website, but all of the data and everything is collected through Mental Health America. And that's one of the benefits of being um, one of the ambassadors. So all of the information that we collect um, doesn't, I don't collect it. It goes through Mental Health America. And what's nice about that is they are able to dissect the information and see where in society or how different messages are coming across. So we're able to refine our message to make more of an impact. Awesome. That's fantastic. So justinpeck.com for a bunch of resources. I'm guessing too, if somebody wants to book you for a public speaking event, they can go to justinpeck.com. Yeah. Yes. My, uh, the, the PR link is on there as well. Great. Um, they can get a hold of Stacy and, and, and do that stuff as well. Awesome. So before we wrap up, I want to ask you what types of suggestions or advice would you give somebody who's listening to the show right now who might be struggling? This is the easiest one. This is the easiest one, right? The only thing that you need to do, this is the biggest suggestion, is just talk. That's it. Use your words. Talk about your feelings. And this is why. It may feel like you're doing the weirdest, most foreign thing ever of talking about this is what you're feeling, right? If, if you're t- feeling, a, if you're having the suicide thoughts or if you're having goofy thoughts or if you're having mania thoughts, if, you're, if people don't know what you're going through, then they just don't know. You have to be willing and able to talk about you, I guess. I, I guess at the, at the end of the day, that's what it comes down to. Yeah. You have to be willing to talk about you. Absolutely. And It's okay to be selfish for a minute. Right. There's nothing wrong with taking care of you first. Yeah, talk about it. Let somebody know that you're going through a challenging time. Yes. And you don't have to have shame about it. Yeah, yeah. dude, you, you nailed that. I mean, and... You, I, I think you're the first. I think you're the first one to probably bring this up, and the shame aspect of it, because that is so prevalent now. Yeah, people, it's a shameful thing when it doesn't need to be or when it shouldn't be. Right, right. Well, Justin, I want to thank you. I have a lot to thank you about. I thank you for speaking at Mental Health America and being their ambassador. I want to thank you for sharing your story. I know you're changing lives by being out there and speaking about it, even when you are going through the midst of it. I mean, still recent hospitalizations and stuff. Please, please take care of yourself. Consider getting rid of your gun. And (laughs) uh, yeah, it's been awesome. I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. Al, thank you so much, my friend. I mean, it's um, I do these I do these shows for the message, but I also do these shows to build relationships and build friendships, and for the listeners to know that you'll be my family, you'll be my brother awesome. for as long as I'm around, man. 
Awesome. I love it. Thank you so much, and uh, make sure you stay healthy. I will, brother. You too. All right. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.